Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you are listening to The Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I talked with Alifia Dilla. Alifia is an ex-corporate executive who worked for some of the largest and longest-running Fortune 100 companies in the world, who spent over a decade in tech getting closer and closer to early-stage companies, brands like Satva, A Cloud Guru, Indeed, American Express, Amazon. Now she's running full turn a consulting practice to help early and growth stage businesses drive profitable growth and scale. We touched on tons of cool themes in this conversation. One thing most of you will find interesting is our discussion on driving action and buy-in, creating change management, building support for your big ideas. So this theme tracks through a couple different points, including building a risk-mitigated portfolio, so you're not just indexing on your big huge, big swing ideas, learning negotiation, and understanding the broader business context and what people want, what their goals are. We also discussed generalists versus specialists, but not just like, oh, I specialize in uh, Facebook ads versus, oh, I'm an SEO person. Rather, being able to do the hands-on work in a channel, but also being able to lead, to garner support, to see the entire forest and not just the trees. So we also talked about the benefits of working at startups to get the hands-on experience but also corporations for the executive presence to create change. We also touched on brand, brand marketing, demand, defining demand generation, growth, and the changing definition of growth, and the importance of messaging. Tons of fun examples. You're going to love this one. Here is my conversation with Alifia Dilla. What's going on? Uh, not too much. I'm excited to be here. You haven't done many podcasts, have you? It's my first time. On first time. It is. I, I've done some video lectures. Anything else you're passionate about right now? Hobby horses that you've been intrigued by? Just AI, which everyone is talking about. So it's fine. I mean, the only thing that I think is, because people are starting to talk about this now, but on the AI front... What I think is interesting is people aren't talking about the change management. And so, you know, people are like really excited to share like what they can do, but it's still unclear to me how people can really, how companies can really harness that and transform their teams because it definitely has the ability to do that. And, you know, the way I built my business kind of around it is that as well. So... I mean, again, I don't know how interesting that is because a lot of people are talking about it, but I think the key to AI is figuring out how, how the change management is going to work. Because I think I see two different areas right now. There are the companies that, you know, they're starting out and they're using it as a native part of their tech stack and, and part of their staffing model, if you will. But then the other companies that already have a staff, like that's a whole different model. What are you supposed to do? This is a segue even into my business today, but One of the reasons I decided to start the business is because I was partnering with agencies that weren't using AI. And I know they had a staff of writers or they had a staff of people who did things. And I'm sure to them, it was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just get rid of those people. And the answer is, you know, you do have to figure it out. You have to figure out what, you know, is the best thing for your customers and the best thing for, you know, you to add value and to compete in the marketplace and all of those things and what that means for your staff. rationalization, I think, does need to take place. 
and or change management because not everybody knows how to use AI. And there, it's just like anything else. If we talk about digital marketing, there are still people who don't really haven't really adopted it, you know, they or they don't really understand it. They just have some section of their company or their team where somebody handles it, but it was never integrated in the first place, right? They just sort of put it as a bolt on to their brand work. So I see it as very similar. And I think the ones who can really integrate it into, you know, a different organizational structure ultimately will be the ones that really reap the benefits. It's interesting that you, you're talking about change management and it's like this higher level, it sounds more sophisticated than I think what a lot of people are, are like where the zeitgeist is in the conversation. Because a lot of people that I see in the SEO space, it's like, we're going to actually change everything. We're, we're going to run programmatic SEO using AI prompts and we're going to scale up to thousands and thousands of pages. And I, I look at what they're currently doing and I'm like, my man, you you shipped one page last quarter. Like, <laughs> do you think that magically now that you have a prompt tool, a conversational prompt, that that's going to change? There's no process. There's no underlying um, rituals and artifacts that even on a manual front allowed you to do a tenth of that, a hundredth of that scale. So I've seen it from that front, maybe from the process side. But tell me more about the change management required. Tell me more about how you're using AI within your business or within your clients. What What's your view on all of this? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing is to, I think, always determine where can AI help. So, you know, that part of the strategy, I think, goes without saying, or at least it should go without saying. But then after that, you need to kind of figure out, well, can your team use it? So do they need to learn, you know, prompt engineering? Do they actually need to understand what these tools can do for them? And I think there's another conversation, which is, are you ultimately looking to cut costs? in a meaningful way. Because if you do, the truth is one person that really understands prompt engineering can cover 10 different areas of the business where they used to only be able to cover one. So you have to figure out, well, what do you do with the other nine people that were working on what they were working on? Do you have, you know, do you have the ability to have the resources to say, we're going to go invest in other areas so you can just fuel growth and you don't have to cut costs? Or do you cut costs with that? But I think at some point, anyone who doesn't do one or the other is going to be sort of left behind. The other thing that I wanted to say related to what you were talking about in terms of process and other artifacts is, to me, a big missing factor, though, is still quality. I think there are a lot of startups that are using AI and they're shipping things really fast. And don't get me wrong, they have an advantage to the tech companies of 20 years ago when they couldn't ship as fast. But at the same time, the quality is missing. And there are a bunch of gaps that I'm seeing in terms of actually solving that, you know, customer need. So a lot of product, you know, product development principles still come into play where you have to understand what is it you're trying to accomplish? What are you trying to solve for your company, for your customer, for your user, whatever it is, and really understand how can you deliver that? So which piece of that can be done through AI? And then, you know, the way I use it is there is a human element. It's just, you know, instead of doing 90% with humans, you're doing the 10% with humans, you free up the humans to do other things. So to me, that's where you can cover a lot more ground. Or like I said, you could cut costs. I would even be happy with a 10% AI and 90% human, but as long as you're intentional about that allocation and not just 
thinking willy nilly, like we can rip our systems out and, and deploy AI 100%. Like if you've thought about the problem and you're like, all right, we could probably get 50% of it done with AI or 80% or whatever. The, I'm sure like different problem sets have different allocations, but to think intentionally seems like the, the missing piece in many cases. Well, you know what it is? I think that when you think about it, there are probably three groups of people. So I know that there are executives out there where they're getting asked by their boards or they're getting asked by their CEO, how are you going to use AI? So there's a buzz going on right now. And there's a trend of, you know, hey, we heard you can cut costs. We heard we can, you know, increase our our productivity or increase our output. And they're asking executives, how do you do that? And in that bucket, a lot of the executives don't actually know. I mean, they're not hands-on keys and tools anymore anyway. So the best they can do is kind of filter it down to their team and say, hey, team, and I know people are doing this. I know, you know, people personally who are doing this, who are going to their teams and saying, hey, we're going to set aside so many hours or we're going to have a meet up every so often. We're going to talk about how we're using AI. And they're just sort of relying on their teams to figure out how it happens. The second bucket of people are the people who are kind of techie and they are so excited about all of the features they're posting everywhere on, you know, LinkedIn and everywhere else about all the things that they can do. And, and, you know, they're really excited about doing that. But in that bucket, what I see the missing pieces is what problems are you really trying to solve? It's cool that you could do all these things, but once again, what are you going to do with that? Or how does that actually work for a business? Because, you can't go to a business and just say, look at all the cool things. You have to take it to the next level. And the last mile of that for a company is very much, hey, here's how it would look end to end. And the third bucket is what I'm trying to do, which I think that bucket needs to really be nourished. And we need more practitioners in the third bucket where you have the business acumen to say, this is how you can use it. You have the technical acumen to say, this is what it can do. And you can bring it full circle to a customer and really make it work for them for their business goals. I don't see that much of that happening right now. So my hope is that it will come. And I really hope that more business people will take the time to understand how it can work for them and that technical people will take more time to understand the business use case. You've written a few essays on LinkedIn that I found interesting. Bud Light's campaign, Google for, for small business for restaurant ordering. But the thing that I noticed is that you coined a phrase, it was thoughts from a measured marketer. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing there's some intentionality behind that, that phrase, measured marketer. So what do you mean by that? And why does it resonate with you? Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of times people think of marketers as the arts and crafts departments. <laughs> And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about how CMOs are held to numbers these days and everybody really needs to understand how to measure their marketing. And that translates into sort of this performance marketing and digital marketing and those kinds of things. But I think it's much more than that. Like to me, being a measured marketer is not just being a digital marketer or not just being able to track something and have attribution to it. It's about thinking holistically about what you're doing. So if you think about the article that I wrote about Bud Light, it was this classic situation of, you know, if you had done sort of your market analysis and actually understood your user, you would have seen that this is a big pivot from your target audience and you're actually making a really big jump and that would be a big risk. And while that's cool in the marketing world, from a business standpoint, that's not a risk that most businesses would would really want to take unless they were in some sort of a situation where they had to. 
And so, you know, I, I always put most conversations in the top, in the context of risk and reward, because that's really what it is. So people ask me all the time, what marketing tactics work? They all work. They literally all work. That's not the question. The question is, what tactics are going to be the best use of my funds and my resources and give me the greatest return with the lowest risk? Or if that, if you know, you don't mind taking risk and you want a bigger reward, it's just like your financial portfolio. It's the exact same conversation. So to me, that's what a measured marketer does is they're looking at all of the angles. They're really thinking about the business. And from there, you, you drive your strategies. And I think that actually dovetails pretty nicely into another concept that I want to write about, but just haven't yet, which is about generalists and specialists. Too often we have specialists that are in generalist roles, right? So you have like the creative wizard who's in a CMO role and real, realistically, that's not really the, the role of a CMO. The role of a CMO is not to be a creative wizard. The role of a CMO is to be a business steward. And whether they happen to be a creative genius or not, or whether they happen to hire a person or a team of creative geniuses, the reality is that the creativity is only one ingredient in the marketing department. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about. I actually sit on the board for a master's program at University of Texas. And we talk about this a lot because, you know, even if you go back to curriculum, there just isn't a place in academia that will teach you how to be a good marketer with all of the breadth that marketing is. You can get specialty certificates or degrees, but they're one flavor. If you get an MBA, that's a broad education in business. You're going to take finance and accounting and all these other things. Where is the actual program that teaches somebody the full breadth of marketing? Where, where is that program? I was thinking of the quote, the, the, like the hammer, you know, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And it's like, how do you pick up the screwdriver, the saw, the additional tools, and then even the mindset to say, like, does this thing need to be fixed in the first place? Or am I allocating my time and resources to something that doesn't even matter? Like, where do you develop that skill set or that mental model? Exactly. I, I mean, you can't get it in school. You can only get it in, you know, I think experience. But here's the funny thing is, how does one even know all the tools that they're supposed to acquire in their career? Uh, I certainly didn't. And in fact, you know, my, I personally went a very kind of backwards way about it. You know, I started out as a consultant. I was with a tech slant. I have an accounting degree that I never used. I did have... Well, I can't even remember. I have an MIS degree. So I have an MIS degree. I understood the internet. I understood technology and, and those kinds of things. And I understood business. And at the time, I didn't really know what I was going to do with that. And I ended up in marketing only because I was working for a CP, what I call a CPG firm. I mean, now you would call it fintech. But I was working for American Express. And, and at American Express, everything is marketing. <laughs> So I, by osmosis, learned enough about marketing and grew up with the four Ps where product and product development is part of marketing, right? Actual promotion is part of marketing. And even the strategic elements like positioning and placement and those kinds of things, which is distribution, are also part of marketing. But these days, like I said, you know, everything is so specialized now. Product teams in the tech world are completely different organizations and you know are most times at odds with marketing when in fact 
you know, there's so much common thread there. And, and in order to have a proper go-to-market strategy, you have to be able to seamlessly operate between product and promotion and all of these different kinds of things. And most people would say the way to, you know, gain that education and that skill set is to go work for a big CPG firm and be a brand manager. But the issue there too is that their flavor of promotion is very limited in some degree, right? I mean, it's heavy on brand because most of them are selling commodities. So the differentiation literally comes from the brand and the advertising and the image. Whereas in tech, it's so much more based on the actual capability, the features of the product, et cetera. And so, you know, most, I mean, there's just so much to cover in terms of marketing. And I feel like it's such a shame that most marketers are just fighting with each other. They're stuck in a specialty. Um, marketing teams have a really hard time collaborating. In fact, I've had I've seen more marketing teams structured where brand is completely separate from performance. They don't collaborate and can't collaborate. You know, and I would like to see us as an industry just get better. And you know, that I, I won't even get into how that's affected the agency model because the agency model is very broken in that respect as well. You you won't get into that, or <laughs> will, will you get into that? <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, right? So it's like you've got all these specialty agencies, but the agencies aren't able to connect the dots either. And most agencies have decided that with all of the specialization, they're just, it's easier for them to focus only on promotion. So most agencies are literally, they're not, they'll call themselves full stack. And all they mean is that they'll go into Google Analytics and they'll show you numbers. And to them, that means full stack. But that's not actually the full stack of marketing, right? Um, they're not going to, you know, how many times do you work with an agency and if they're not able to show that revenue increased or that profits increased, they ask about price and they ask about your offering or they ask about some things that they weren't really even working on. And so, you know, in my business, for example, it's more of a consulting firm where you might come to us and say, well, we really want to run social ads. We can do that for you. But what we, we won't sign up for that. We'll ask for certain data. We'll kind of do an analysis and we'll come back and we'll say, do we think social is going to solve your problem? Is that really the thing? Or here's kind of a recommendation of what we think will actually solve your problem. Or we're, you know, what we think will solve your problem isn't what we do and we can refer you to somebody else. But that doesn't happen with a typical agency. I mean, that's that's the answer that we've come up with is just having a good referral partner universe and having a very strict criteria set for how we choose clients. And in, in the, the initial conversation, if somebody's like, we want us, yeah, we want organic growth. But also we haven't figured out our messaging. In fact, our ICP has changed six times over the course of this year. And the homepage is actually reflecting our old ICP. And I'm like, you should talk to a messaging agency. <laughs> you need to do this way before you, you pour on SEO. So it's having a little bit of, I guess, like intellectual honesty because we're, 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 you know, we can solve a problem for them, but there's a problem that needs to be solved first or at least in sequence with what we're doing. So, but I get your point. I mean, nobody's incentivized to, you know, look at all the various solutions. That's why maybe the best case scenario is to have either an in-house strategist dictating the pieces, putting the pieces together, or a growth advisor, right? Like we work with a lot of growth advisors who place us when it comes down to like, oh, we need to invest in organic growth. 
Yep, absolutely. And our, what our consulting firm does is essentially we're a growth advisor. And there's a strategy arm, there's a marketing services arm, and there's an analytics arm. And how it works best is if they all go hand in hand. And what we find is not only is it easier for us, but it, the value from a customer's perspective is it's tenfold. They save the most money. And we, I mean, it's been really cool to see when you kind of build it from scratch, but it's so true. I mean, it's all intertwined. So when you have those three things going together, you really do see all the boats rise because almost any example of a, of a thing, of a campaign or some sort of a tactic that you want to run is going to touch those three things. And I think where people, you know, what people sometimes for, sometimes forget is that you, you know, you have to have and, and, you know, that end to end view where what was your plan in the first place? What was your objective? Right. What were you trying to achieve? What are the tactics that are going to get there? And you have to have flawless execution. But then ultimately, you have to measure what you did. You can't just, you know, launch things and then hope that they did well or just assume that they will because it's a best practice. You never know. And if you're doing it right, actually, what I just said isn't even the right order. You start with the analytics and you inform, you know, you inform the strategy through the analytics and then you, you know, get into the tactics based on the strategies. note of generalization versus specialization, you mentioned old advice maybe being going to a CPG firm and, and being a brand manager. I only have my experience to base anything on, but I started out in early, early stage startups, so like pre-seed. And I felt like that was a really like fast track way to, to becoming a generalist because even if like, say, I mean, I was fresh out of college, so I didn't have any skills. I didn't have any hammer, you know, nothing. <laughs> but I, uh, e- even if I believed that SEO was the thing that was going to work, that was my skill set. If it wasn't going to work for that particular startup at that particular time, I couldn't have done it. So I, I almost had to look at everything as a potential opportunity and, and to say, all right, maybe no marketing is the answer right now. Maybe it's to take customer support calls or like to build a sales team or, or you know, like, I basically had to look at everything, every potential opportunity, because there was no room for rolling a rock up a hill if it wasn't going to bring in customers at that stage. So is there a difference that you've seen in terms of startups and corporations in terms of generalists versus specialists in, in their utility? A hundred percent. So in my career, I probably took a backwards path where instead of going from smaller companies to bigger and bigger companies, I actually started out at really big companies and I worked my way down um, for two reasons. One, because I just find that more interesting and, and I, you know, I like that better. I like to build things and I learned that along the way. But the other thing is I would actually recommend that to a lot of people because like what you just said, I found the same thing. I knew how to manage big things and I knew how to be very organized and how to do, you know, how to go from a plan to execution and measurement, reporting, all these kinds of things. But I couldn't do it myself. I didn't know how to do any of it myself. And so whether it's a big CPG firm or, or, or any other big company, you know, on the marketing side, you'll have agencies that are doing things. So you might not know how to design anything, but you might develop a very good eye for design. You can direct it. Well, at the end of the day, in a larger company, you may learn a lot of skills around relationships, giving direction, positioning, posturing, politics, all of those kinds of things. And I won't poo-poo any of those skills. It's 100% true that 
the larger and larger organizations you go to or the bigger and bigger teams that you have, you need all of those things. So I will not, you know, disparage any of those skills by any means. But I think there is a trade-off for sure. Whereas if you go the startup route and you go to smaller companies, you can actually build something with your own two hands. And that was something I wanted to do. So that's why I ended up moving to smaller and smaller companies. I just enjoy it more. And I think in the end, what I would recommend to anyone is that it's best to get both sides. It doesn't matter which way you start and which way you end up. But at the end of the day, I think the holy grail is sort of being able to say, hey, I understand how to work with large teams. I understand how to give direction because and how to be a good leader ultimately, right? But at the same time, if I needed to, or even if I just want to, I can go do something myself. And I think they also feed well into each other because to me, being a good leader is also being able to look at something that someone produces and say, hey, this, this, and that need to be changed in this way. Or, hey, you know, how do you coach if you've never really done it either? And I think, you know, again, there are other things you can coach on. You can coach people just directionally and you can, you can still be really helpful. But I think that it's really rare to find people that can do both. I have so many thoughts and I agree with all of this. This is, this is beautiful. It's almost a meta lesson in terms of the building a generalist skill set, because when people think about, I want to be a generalist. They think of a a model like the T-shaped marketer, and they'll use foundational skills that apply across multiple channels like data or psychology or, you know, customer research. And then you pick a couple channels to go deep in paid acquisition, even like narrowing down. You're like, oh, I'm a Facebook ads expert and SEO or, or whatever that is. But then beyond that, you, you, you can build skills in terms of knowing specific trades or, or disciplines or platforms, but then also in terms of the larger companies, how do you get buy-in? How do you get those campaigns actually done? How do you get budget for it? How do you build enough goodwill and timeline to see them through to fruition? And in, in my experience, I went the opposite direction as you, like I was, I was very hands-on. And then it was really at HubSpot that I had learned how to get buy-in for my ideas, how to cross-functionally build collaborative teams, even if I wasn't their direct manager. And that helped me in the agency sense. So we, we are, our role, we have a strategist role. Um, and essentially, they're an SEO expert as well as a, a client-facing account manager. And it's very important. We call it executive presence. So it's like, especially with the enterprises that we work with, one of the most challenging things is not doing keyword research. It's, it's the executive presence to get those ideas pushed through, to get the feedback that you need from their team, to continue the renewal, to build the scopes, all of the soft side. And it's like that meta level, having both of those skills, I think makes you a, tr- a truly powerful weapon. Yep. And, and going back to even what we were talking about in terms of academia, I don't see any reason why you can't develop that talent from a young age. I think it's really rare, but also really powerful to find young people who are early in their career that are trying to have that well-balanced toolkit, if you will. And they can be, I mean, they, I think they could just be so powerful. Um, I'm always searching for them. So that's a little plug. can you teach me something from your experience being an executive at large organizations about the political side the emotional intelligence side that maybe small business owners or or startup marketers wouldn't know i mean i don't know that i have anything that i could teach you that you probably haven't already heard but i mean it really is about negotiation Everything is a negotiation. Uh, it's all about give and take, and you have to see things from the other person's side. 
So, you know, there's a book that I've been reading recently that's called Never Split the Difference. And it's all about negotiation. But when you think about it, your whole life is a negotiation. I'm a parent. I have two kids. That's a negotiation. They're always, they're always trying to strike a deal with me. So I think just understanding that, I wish I understood that earlier in my career or earlier in my life. And I, I wouldn't say I'm uh, an expert in that, but it's something that is a life skill I'm trying to get better at and will continue to try to get better at. I think everybody should. But that's that's a big part of, you know, all of that influence, the, you know, relationship building, all of that stuff. I, I found that to be very true in, in the sense that when somebody is maybe more of an artist or a craftsperson or they've got their thing that they really enjoy doing, in my background, it was experimentation. And you saw people who were deeply in the weeds and they're like, we, we need to implement this statistical method. Like they'd just be so far in the weeds and they would be f- so frustrated at what they called the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion that would sometimes supersede all their research and statistics. But it's like they never thought to understand what does that hippo actually want and what are the competing priorities that they're dealing with. And we see it now in content where people are frustrated. They're like, why don't we build a media marketing program and invest in storytelling and, and rich narratives? But they're speaking a language that is foreign to the person that they're trying to sell that to. They're not understanding that First off, speak in terms of ROI, like what's the investment going to cost and how much are we going to uh, make from it? But they're so within their sphere of passion that just stepping outside of that and thinking, well, what, what does that person that I need to convince actually want? And, mm-hmm. and maybe starting from that side of the argument. Exactly. Someone very wise once told me, what's the best way to get some, if someone's across the street from you, what's the best way to get them to come to your side of the street? You walk over, you cross the street, you hold their hand and you bring them over to your side. (laughs) And that's true. You have to start from where they are. You don't just honk or shout. (laughs) (laughs) If only. (laughs) Another thing that well i wanted to talk about this in general but i think it does factor into maybe getting buy-in for your ideas it it did for me when i was running experimentation at workado i think it was the first time one of the first times that we met i was impressed at this idea that you had spoken about around building portfolios of growth bets and i think it was oh you were at a cloud guru but you were talking about it from the context of your work at indeed and i don't remember the split in the portfolio but you had mentioned something around say 50 percent safe bets 20 or 30% optimizations and then 20% like big risky, big swing experiments. Does, do you remember this? Yeah. So basically, I, I don't even think I came up with this. I think this was a Google kind of framework or something, but it's kind of like 70, 30, 70 20, 10. So 70 in terms of safe bets, 20% in terms of optimizations. And then, or actually the 70% you'd be optimizing on what already works. 20% would be sort of what are the adjacent things that you can do, sort of the next steps. And then the the 10% would be what would be called like moonshots. I mean, this is where you you have to wonder, like, how did Bezos get into, you know, space? And those those were things that he was thinking about for many, many years that seemed absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, and even at one time, you know, Alexa and voice, all of that seemed kind of ridiculous. So um, a lot of tech companies, I think, operate under that philosophy. And I, I highly recommend that. Again, going back to manage it like your portfolio, because I really believe it's all about risk and reward, regardless of the department, right? So, you know, marketing just so happens to be 
um, an area of business that requires a lot of investment. So you're dealing with a lot of money. Like some of the greatest financial experience I gained was just managing hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing budget because that doesn't come without a bunch of strings and guidelines and measurements and a bunch of different things, you know, that go into that. So that nobody takes that lightly. And, and, you know, I think you can apply it to, to a lot of different places in business if you just think about it like that. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the tech community has been really good about that. And I think that's one of the skills that you learn going into the tech industry. Well, I like it from a risk mitigation and expected value perspective. So just thinking in terms of our business, most of the ways that we're doing sales or marketing or generating clients, we put that into the safe bets bucket. But then we keep an open basket of, we haven't allocated the specific percentages, but let's say 20 or 30% into fun projects that we have no idea if they're going to work or not. And it keeps things interesting, but we know at the end of the day that we've got a defensive basket where we're probably going to get some clients, even if those 30% of bets don't work. But from from maybe a middle management expectation setting level, if you're trying to get buy-in for those big ideas, what I always found was give the red meat first. So in terms of experimentation, before I would launch some mass scale, predictive, AI-driven personalization program, you know, I'd probably find a couple pieces of low-hanging fruit on a high-traffic paid landing page to run tests there. I would do those little quick wins first to build up the support and trust and make sure that I had enough support garnered for when I had the creative ideas, people were like, all right, cool. Yeah. You're already doing things that seem to work. Like I trust you. Like, you know, don't, don't put all of your eggs in that basket, but yeah, for sure. Let's try one of those and see how it works. Oh, hundred percent. When I was at Amazon, that was the entire way. That was how relationship building happened. You sort of had to do something to prove some proof of concept, socialize that, gain the buy-in, and then you would get sort of the funding or the resources or whatever to actually launch whatever it was. And I think it's a great, I think it's absolutely a great model. You know, what I think is interesting is that the further up you get in terms of, you know, seniority and managing teams and stuff, it becomes more and more ambiguous. So that becomes harder and harder to do over time. And it, it, and then you start to, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like Benjamin Button, but you start to go back to like, well, this person has expertise. I trust them. They sound like they know what they're talking about. They make a good argument. And it, it's funny how it works backwards that way a little bit. And so it all goes back to, you know, why I will never disparage those softer skills. You, you absolutely need them. And there's a world in which that is how people operate. You know, you're you're not sort of asking for the experiment. You're not asking for the results anymore. You're sort of just influencing based on experience, based on the, you know, solidity of the argument and those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I definitely see it both ways. We've talked a little bit about your consultancy, Full Turn. Yes. Let's fully flesh that out. What are you doing? <laughs> what are your goals? It could be a while to figure out. <laughs> Um, so it started out as I, you know, actually just wanted to take a break and I wanted to do some advisory work. So like I said before, that it's a growth advisory firm and that's how it kind of started out. But what I quickly realized was that the same clients that need the advisory, they also need the ongoing services. So we decided to launch a marketing services arm. And along with that, we launched an analytics services arm. And so really, and this is where I think we really should have gone to market with the three in the beginning because I think that we get the best value 
uh, for the client by doing all three. And, uh, you know, what I learned is that there's so much synergy amongst all of those three. So the way I look at it and the way I explain it to people is that it's basically a consulting firm and we've got three different lines of business, but they all work together. And the way that it works best is if, you know, there's a little bit of each. Um, we target pretty much early to mid-stage growth companies. Um, and the reason for that is we're specifically focused on people who want to grow profitably. And most people say to me, well, who doesn't? Uh, and that's a fair point. Everybody wants profitable growth, but not everybody needs it. So if you have, you know, a wealthy backer that is giving you gobs of money, there's a different way to grow that I, you know, that I would recommend and that I've done with, you know, in the past with other clients and things like that or, or companies that I worked for. But that's not what we do as a company. So we're much more focused on, you know, companies that are bootstrapped. So they have an eye on profitability, which of course is beneficial now that it's in vogue. But th like I said, there's a different set of tactics and a different philosophy that's used when you really need to make sure that your investments are driving profit along the way. And one thing I noticed is uh, you're making a strategic case for it now from your business sense, but also one thing I've noticed in past conversations with you is it seems like there's a passionate side to this too. And in terms of like, you've spoken a lot about small businesses uh, the last couple of times we've chatted and on the podcast intake form, you had this beautiful note, uh, just even the, the language you used was great. But specifically, you said the, the plight of the small business and how tech greed has underserved the companies our economy most needs to thrive. <laughs> yeah. So it I'm, seems like you're doing it for the love of it too. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a small business owner as well, not just with my consulting firm, but my husband and I also own a restaurant downtown in Austin. And so, you know, what I see is that tech, I worked for tech companies, right? For over a decade and tech companies have great margins and um, the more and more tech solutions that we got. So everybody has seen the infographic with the 10,000 point solutions for any particular thing, right? So you have all these solutions out there. But what I think has happened is that on some level, tech companies are selling to other tech companies because they're the only ones that have the margin to actually buy all of these different solutions. When you look at the smaller businesses, they can't afford any of these things. Um, Salesforce, for example, not to dog Salesforce, used it for many years, but, you know, Salesforce is incredibly expensive to the small business owner. And again, if somebody is uh, held, either they're holding themselves to the standard or they're being held to the standard of being profitable while they grow, that is a really hard thing to do. And especially right now where we, you know, we're with the economy the way that it is, with inflation, with interest rates and everything else, I mean, this is a really hard time for small businesses. And so I feel like at some, on some level, tech companies weren't greedy enough that instead of doing the harder thing and building solutions for small businesses where the prices had to be much lower and their margins would have been lower, they took a different route. And so, you know, I think that this is a time where for me personally, I really want to focus on that and, you know, having just taking all of the learnings that I got from both big companies and tech companies and startups and all of these different things to say, look, there are a bunch of best practices that have already been figured out. There are a bunch of technologies that already exist that just need to be applied to these smaller businesses. So for example, there are, in, there are entire industries that are pretty 
what would I say? They're laggards in terms of being tech savvy. So you look at restaurants, you look at professional services, so construction firms like lawyers, dentists, all of these kinds of professional services. There are all kinds of industries where tech just didn't really penetrate. And I'm sure that's because investors in tech companies would say, well, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. So I get that. But in terms of the overall you know, economy and what we need to thrive as a society, we need small businesses to thrive. So the, the bigger juice is worth the squeeze. <laughs> this is sort of a, a side tangent, but the l- lack of maybe technical expertise on small businesses part made you think that it's almost a counter signal now where when I'm going to work with somebody. So for example, my I took Spanish lessons for many years and my Spanish teacher has a website and it's, it's, it's glorious. It's, it, there's no, like, it, it's not a good website. You know, it's like <laughs> the funnel is very hard. It's hard to pay. <laughs> But it's like a counter signal. And I'm like, I actually trust you as a Spanish teacher because you haven't figured out like your three-step optimized funnel with the perfect copywriting and urgency timers and all of that. So now when I see something that's too polished, I'm like, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. (laughs) But it also makes me think as a marketer, I'm like, I could come in and tell you like three things right now that are going to improve your site, like the easiest things ever. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Um, I mean, I'm in a similar boat. Like, Honestly, my website is kind of garbage right now and it's going to remain garbage because that's not, you know, what I'm doing is trying to build value. I spent, I mean, I'm investing in product development. I'm investing in AI and I mean, I'm not trying to sell products. I'm not in the product business, but in order for my business to run efficiently and for me to make it work for small businesses, I had to build stuff, you know, in house. That's part of my secret sauce. And, and, you know, that's just how we had to do it. But it's a really good point that you make. I remember, so I used to, I actually sold mattresses at one point in time. I was in the mattress business, selling them online, highly competitive space, um, as you know. But we used to talk about the industry as, oh, such and such company, they're just marketers. Or like such and such, like they're technically strong. They understand the technical mechanics of a mattress. And, you know, the the company I worked for was all about the customer and the comfort and all this kind of stuff. But it's like that, right? In any industry, I think you could probably say the same thing. Like who's actually strong in their technology and then who's actually just, you know, great marketers and they're just good at connecting with customers regardless of how strong their product is. I think that's true for everything. And, you know, I, that's a really good point. I agree that, you know, sometimes if you come across as you're too good at marketing, it's you've got to be skeptical on on what's behind that. Well, your point was really good on the mattresses too. And I, I don't think you probably want to say specific names here, but I, I could if I wanted to. There's a couple that were clearly like they raised a ton of capital, had massive expectations and were valued like SaaS companies were in, in 2019. And I believe there was a lot of disappointment mm-hmm. when the markets didn't validate those expectations. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. There's a tech company in that space. That, well, I mean, I legitimately like, there was a technological product around it. That I think they're still, I mean, I don't know exactly how they're doing, but I think they're still going. I mean, they didn't skyrocket either, even though they were legitimately had a technical component to their, to their product. So I think I know the one you're talking about. Is that the one that like maybe like biohackers and optimizers would love? Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah, an yeah, app. Yeah. That <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine was an influencer for them uh, while I was selling mattresses and we didn't speak for a little. That's okay. We're friends again. Yeah. The Venn diagram between people who listen to Andrew Huberman and people who buy this product, it's like a circle. Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) 
Okay, let's do, if you're down for it, you want to do some fun questions more more aimed at you, more, not, I call them rapid fire. They're not really rapid fire. Yeah. Cool. So this is a weird question. I borrow it from Tyler Cowen. He's my favorite podcaster. So like a violinist, like a musician, even at the top of their craft, they, they practice scales. The scale is kind of like the, the root level uh, instrument they can use to practice. So what is your version of a musician practicing scales that you apply to your work to stay sharp? That's a great question. And I think my answer is twofold. So one is technology. I always need to know what the, you know, what the best tools are on the market, what, you know, what's new, because the truth is there's not marketing technology is not like some, you know, separate department or some separate container of things. It's actually part and parcel to all of it. So even if I, you know, even if I was a designer by trade, if I don't know that, you know, I should be using Figma or Adobe or whatever, like I'm, you know, if I'm still drawing pen and paper, there's like limits what I can actually do, I, I sort of fall into a, a, an even larger niche than, you know, what I might otherwise be able to do. So I think on the tools front, I'm always, I'm like literally always in the market. I'm always up for talking to a vendor to figure out how do you, you know, how do you build a better mousetrap and how do you do your job better or faster? So it's like either faster, better, or um, cheaper than how you were doing it before. The second answer I'll give is messaging. So it's funny that you mentioned messaging earlier. Um, I think it's the found, it's literally the foundation of all marketing. Um, so often I will uh, be asked by a prospective client to do X. So, uh, you know, we need a new website or, and this is all on the marketing services side, obviously, but we need a new website or we, want, we need to do social or we need to do whatever. And what I'll ask is like, do you have, you know, your, ICP, do you have your target audience? Do you understand market size? Do you understand, you know, do you have any customer insights? Do you understand these things? Do you have a messaging hierarchy? Because you literally can't skip the step because by the time you get into the web design and the content, genuinely, you wouldn't know what to write. You wouldn't know what to write about. You wouldn't even know what was good or what was bad. There's honestly no way of doing it. There's no way, way of connecting with a customer if you don't actually understand what their problem is and understand how to communicate with them. I'll give you an example that I have with a prospective client right now. You know, they sent me a bunch of stuff so that I could do an audit and we can diagnose what their real problem is going on. And we talked about it on a structural level. You can understand a lot just by somebody's organization and like who's running what. So we know off the bat that they have kind of an underdeveloped marketing function. So marketing is sitting under sales and, um, you know, so they don't have a senior, senior leader kind of overseeing that. But nonetheless, when you kind of look at their, you know, you look at their materials and you kind of audit what they're doing, they're saying things, but they're completely missing sort of why somebody would buy this product in their first place. So what most people do is they either go too broad and they'll say, like, buy the product because they want to grow. Everyone wants to grow, right? Or like, it's like being in beauty and saying they buy it because they want to look good. Well, yeah, I mean, that's way too broad. But, you know, you have to get sort of a little deeper to understand, well, what are the segments? Like, are you looking to, like, in beauty, are you looking to look better because you went through a trauma? And something happened, you were in a, like, you know, I had a cosmetics client and 
they're, they did not cater to this audience, but in a way, they would have been better positioned to catering to trauma victims because they had a very high bar for being a minimalist when it came to cosmetic surgery and those kinds of things, but a very high bar when it comes to quality. And when you think about it, where are those two, how, who in the segment is going to actually want those two things? So meaning you're not looking for, to make somebody look like Barbie. You're not going to overdo things, but you're going to charge a lot of money for it. Pretty much people who went through some sort of a trauma or need restructuring and, or it's like their face and they need to look like themselves again. That is what fits that audience. So it's just an example of where you really need to understand who you're going after and the messaging has to change for that. And, you know, again, I don't really know how you get to good marketing without that. It's really cool you brought that up. It's it's one of those things that it's very hard to quantify. And even sometimes the feedback cycles are too slow to really realize the change that it's making. But in the context of our business, there's very subtle changes. And I'm, I'm a language geek, so this stuff is it's my favorite to discuss. But there's little differences in how you describe the type of agency you are. And those differences mean the world when it comes to who contacts you and, and then also not only who contacts you, but like what the conversation how the conversation is framed once they have the conversation with you, whether it's, you know, you're a content production, content marketing, content strategy agency, or SEO, organic growth, like there's so many words that can be used to describe the same process. And one way that I think it's, it's very interesting to, if you don't believe in the power of this stuff, change the job description that you're using and promote two different versions, almost A-B test it. So if we describe the same role as like, I can't even remember the words we use. It's like SEO growth strategist versus SEO strategist. It brings in a completely different set of people with different backgrounds and experiences because their expectations are set differently based on the words we use. And even the copy within the job description, like small changes mean a huge difference in, in who we attract for that role. It's, it's powerful stuff. Oh, 100%. So as you know, I used to work for Indeed. And um, in many of my jobs, my, my real role was just to hire a lot of really good people and teams that way. And I've done exactly what you're saying and totally agree. And the other thing that I tell people, which is totally counterintuitive, is you actually don't want to cast a wide net. I know it seems bizarre, but the more specific you are, as long as it's done intelligently, if the more specific you are, the more you will attract overall fewer people, but they'll be better people. They'll be the right people. And it's true with almost anything, right? If you think about it, you know, probably in, in the dating world and like relationships, but job postings. And it's, it's really true with almost anything regarding this, the way I do positioning, you know, whether for my own business or even with job descriptions and things like that, half the time, I feel like I'm signaling, like I'm using like a secret code language to find T-shaped people. <laughs> that have but you are though, you, you are signaling, like that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's in all the, in all the right and positive ways, but you know, that's, a, that's another, you know, good way to answer your question about, I feel like I need to have the be on the pulse of, you know, not only the latest tools, but like the latest practices and things, because otherwise I can't use the right words in the, in the job description or in the various things to signal all the right things, you know, so you kind of have to be in it a little bit 
if you want to be able to, you know, find the right people. I mean, this is true in everything, right? There are, there are communities of people. And it's not just as simple as like, oh, I'll join the Facebook group with that community. You kind of have to be authentically in that community. And so for me in my career, I feel like that's part of it. Like I have to still be a practitioner always, at least some degree, like on some level and some percentage basis, I need to like be able to still talk the talk and, and, you know, even walk the walk a little bit. That's that's why I'm I never want to get too far away from the work or like I want my ear to be on the ground at most times because with language specifically the things that people say now may change in in their connotation in two years you know we've we've been in growth and growth used to mean something completely different than it does now I actually don't even know what it means now I don't know what people think about when they think about growth but several years ago it was a very specific thing that I believe Facebook, Jamath Paliapatiya, you know, created the growth team that was sort of a hybrid product and marketing organization, fully set with the North Star of growing user base. And nowadays, like some people have a negative reaction to that. They're like, oh, like growth hacker bros, or, you know, like everybody's got a different kind of meaning. And, and if you're not close enough to that, you could inadvertently be signaling the wrong thing while thinking that what you mean is this, and the market reads it as that. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't use it anymore. I, I completely got away from it because... You know, I have a theory on what happened here, but to your point, I was part of all of that. And um, I built a growth team and, you know, talked to all of the growth leaders at the big companies to like understand how they did it and make a recommendation. But growth, to your point, actually meant growing the business. And it was a hybrid taking, you know, taking data, taking marketing and taking product and kind of putting it all together. And it was uh, sort of the enemy of brand marketing. And I believe the brand marketers won. <laughs> wait, wait, that's a cool contrarian opinion. Can you explain that more? What do you mean brand marketers won? So I'm not even, you know, well, let me just say, so uh, the brand marketers basically saw the threat and brand marketers, uh, traditionally speaking, are not the, you know, number crunching type. And you know, they, but, but what they do have is a lot of money and they hired a bunch of econometricians who would build models that nonetheless come back and say that brand marketing is more performant than at the time, digital marketing. Right. And so, but I don't know where exactly this happened, but somewhere along the way, what we used to be called performance marketing, which was the digital marketing and the bottom of the funnel and Bofu and all that stuff. Somewhere along the way, performance and growth became the same thing. Yep, totally. And that's why I don't use it anymore because it, the meaning it once had is only known to that cohort of people that came up around that time. It doesn't exist in the world today at, at all. Growth just means performance now. You, you know what's so strange? And I, I would rarely do this, but I had a podcast earlier that we did just with the co-founders. It's our kitchen side series. And we started out, we, we keep a list of running notes and my top item was, okay, I'll bite. What is demand generation? Because demand generation to me is perplexing in that it has seemingly shifted meaning to be almost the complete opposite of what it was when I thought I knew what it was. And I used to think demand generation was pretty much performance marketing or growth marketing. And now when people talk about it, they're like, no, 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 that's demand capture. Demand generation is, <laughs> is, is, is driving, it's driving campaigns to drive interest in your category and, and your brand. 
And I was like, but that used to be brand marketing. <laughs> to me, demand generation is just the B2B term. One of my favorite topics is B2B versus B2C versus CPG. Because B2B and B2C are both tech kind of, I mean, they're not tech terms, obviously, but they're more utilized by, you know, the tech world is like, wait, are we going B2B or are we going B2C? Or are we doing both? Which everybody, of course, knows you have to do. Just like if you're e-commerce, you know, you have a hybrid model and you have to be brick and mortar too. So it's just a matter of evolution. Um, but demand generation is just a, a term that I think that B2B firms use. Um, similarly, in the B2B world, product marketing is a thing which is the exact, almost the exact same thing as a brand manager. A brand manager, totally. In the CPG That's world. so funny. But what I think is the tragedy of it all is that if we agree that, and a lot of people do agree, and some of the professors at UT also agree with this, so I love them for that. But if we all agree that they are in fact the same thing, why in the world are their skills so wildly different? You could never take a product marketer and just pop them into a CPG role or vice versa. Why? Well, because they they literally don't do the same thing. So a product marketer rarely is actually in charge of the entire brand, right? They don't have PL responsibility typically. And and that is that is one of the pillars of the CPG world is you have to have PL responsibility and you are in charge of the entire brand strategy. And, and that includes distribution. Product marketers have zero to do with distribution. So I think it's really funny because on the one level, yes, they, they are built to be, they're the most equivalent of any other role. Like, you know what I mean? From the tech world to the CPG world. But yet there are so many missing pieces in the product marketing world that, and I mean, this is well-documented. It's not just my opinion. There's a lot of research out there that Richard King has done. And there's, I mean, you could just see it in any, in any organization, which is why there's such a rift oftentimes between product and product marketing. This is uh, illuminating and it's incisive. We need, we need more of this. It's like you're clearing the clutter and just being like, wait, it's just this. And like, wait, why are these two things different? Can you write more on LinkedIn? I would love more of this clarity out in the world. This is great. It's on my to-do list. Like how, this is another, you know, thing that you'll have to teach me, which is how do you find the time? And, you know, I just need to do it. I just need to make it part of my schedule or something. And there's so many things I want to write about and I think about them and I jot them down, but then I just don't come back to them. (laughs) Well, the the real answer is you got to make the time. um, And I just do it in the mornings and I drink a bunch of caffeine. And um, I tell myself that, hey, this is important, even if it doesn't feel like it is. But I was actually going to ask you about your productivity function. Specifically, I'm interested if you have any strange productivity tips, anything out of the norm, but what's your system look like? Uh, I don't know. This could be, this is definitely strange. I don't know if it's a tip, but I, for the past year, have been actually like super fluid. And what that means is it's almost like, um, what do they call it with children? They call it like child, like they call it like child-led potty training, for example. It's like, oh, let the child decide when they need to potty train. And that's almost like what I'm doing. So if I feel like doing nothing or like being really unproductive, if I'm not feeling it, I will like lean into that and let that, like let it ride and know that the next day I'll, okay, go to bed early, like get rest. And then the next day I'll feel more productive and let myself be really, really productive in those moments, but I don't force it. 
So, and, but I also schedule it to some degree. So, you know, I don't, you know, just depending on what's going on with certain things, like if there's, if there's a lot going on on one day, um, then the next day I will actually schedule it so that I have the downtime so that I can decompress. And I think that I just kind of started doing that too, just because the stress levels end up being really high. And I, I just find it a way to allow myself a little more freedom and, and just kind of doing what feels right. And, you know, honestly, earlier last year, when I first started the business, I took it really slow. It's scary. And, you know, I had to really get comfortable with it. And I found that being kind to myself in that way was okay. And it was probably a good thing. That's, that's kind of, I mean, I go in waves and seasons, but like usually when I'm at my best, that's the attitude that I have. It's like, um, like I'm very free range. And if you're running a business, especially with employees and clients, you can't always be free range. You do have to adhere to some other people's time as well, which includes a lot of calendar scheduling. But the less I can do of that, the better. And then when I do have a lot of things booked, I one trick that I have now is I try not to pressure myself to be productive in other ways. So if I've got six meetings on the calendar on a Tuesday, I'm not going to try to like stress myself and pressure myself to write an essay in the two and a half hours that I have between those meetings, right? And then if I do have more of maybe that type of deep work energy, and I'm feeling it on, on like a random Wednesday, I'll just flow with it. I'm like, all right, this is fun. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm not going to like let whatever I had scheduled previously stop that as long as it's not a client call. And I'm just going to go with that flow. But sometimes it's hard because it's like, you know, you pressure yourself. You're like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And uh, I don't know. I feel like it wastes extra energy because then it's not only the task that you have to do, but then you have to conquer your own emotional state around the task. A hundred percent. And the other thing is that, you know, I think it's hard for the people around me sometimes. Like, I think my family wishes I was a little more structured about things, you know, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't know, we find the balance. And sometimes that means like, if I'm really in a productive mode, and it's like late at night, I'll keep working, you know. Um, so evenings are not off limits. I give myself that because you have to find some way to make up the time. If you're not, if you're like, Hey, I'm going to allow myself to be like, take down time or not be productive. You have to make it up somehow. But to me, it feels better because if I'm in the groove, then I'm in the groove. So it's weird, but in that way, I've like sort of taken a note out of the create, like the creative world, I think is much more comfortable with that. And I would not, you know, necessarily, um, describe myself as being creative first, but I've taken that note out of their book. Very cool. Well, we're at time. Um, thanks so much for doing this podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you and this was no exception. So I hope it turns out well. Do you want to point, um, people to somewhere online, your LinkedIn, anything you want to point out? Um, sure. So Way to contact me for my business is www.fullturn with an n.co. Um, otherwise, you can reach me on LinkedIn. My, I mean, it's hard to say my name, or it's hard to spell my name. But how do you, how do you want me to do it? I'll, I'll say it in the intro, and we'll we'll spell it in the episode. So I think people should be able to get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, otherwise we might just want to put it on there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes too. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow you on LinkedIn. Go to your website. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.